0: Now, most of you who've been coming here regularly know that I've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew uh, for some time now. And uh, two weeks ago, uh, when um, I left off in Matthew, we uh, we finished Matthew chapter twenty-six, which is on page one four one nine in the church Bibles here. And uh, I mentioned that's the longest chapter in Matthew. and uh, we, we ended the chapter with verses sixty-nine through seventy-five, where um, Matthew records um, uh, Peter denying Jesus as his Lord uh, as, uh, as that, they, that they even knew him as the Lord had predicted and as a result of uh, the chapter ended with uh, uh, Peter going outside the courtyard and weeping uh, uh, bitterly. And in Matthew 27 in verses 1 through 10 uh, we read about Judas uh, who also betrayed Jesus And uh, how he regretted his actions and tragically ended up uh, in uh, taking his own life. Now, originally I worked on verses 1 through 10 uh, to preach uh, through that. But as I was working on that section, I kept coming back. In fact, the central point of that was verse 4, where uh, Judas says, I have sinned. I have sinned. For I have betrayed innocent blood. But those three words, I have sinned. Uh, on the surface level, uh, talks about you know Judas is seized with remorse. He even acknowledges that, I've uh, betrayed innocent blood. He even returns the thirty pieces of uh, silver. It almost makes us believe that his repentance was real. I mean, he had a remorse. That's what the text says. A genuine remorse. So did Peter. But what's the difference? Because there's a difference in where the two of them ended up for all eternity. One who also felt bad about his sin ends up in heaven with Jesus. Another one who also felt bad about betraying Jesus ends up without Christ in an eternal conscious place of suffering that the Bible describes as hell. What's the difference? Isn't feeling bad about our sinful actions and acknowledging our sin by saying, I have sinned, not a part of true repentance? But we also say the same words, right? We profess to be believers. We also say, I have sinned. How often we say that. We say that and we feel bad about our sin. Sometimes we even weep over the things we have done. But how can we know for sure that we won't end up where Judas ends up? Because he said those same words as well. It's a very important question and that's what led me to uh, go down the path that I've gone down and I'll share with you what that path is. But because this is a question that requires a very serious Reflection. That's why instead of going through the entire uh, passage, uh, I plan to address the subject of true and false repentance. True and false repentance through a series of messages, perhaps three, perhaps four. Uh, But today is the first one. I have titled this mini-series as I have sinned, sign of true or false repentance. I want to leave that as a question mark for all of us. I have sinned. When we say I have sinned, is that a sign of false repentance or a sign of true repentance? That's a question I want to lay before all of us as we go through this passage so that the Spirit of God will help us to examine our lives to see, is my repentance genuine or fake? It's not about examining the repentance of others around us. Is my repentance true or Am I deceived like Judas? Remember, both of these people walked with Jesus, talked with him, ate with him for three plus years. Yet, one of them ended up, according to Jesus' words, I wish this one was never born. How can we be sure? We're not deceiving ourselves. That's why in this series we'll not only look at those how those words, I have sinned, can be spoken by one who has not truly repented and as a result does not have true saving faith, but we will also look at how those words must be spoken by those who have truly repented and those who truly have what the Bible calls a saving faith. And in the end, I hope we'll understand if our faith is genuine faith that will lead us to eternal joy, or if our faith is a false faith that will lead us to eternal destruction. I'm going to pray and ask the Spirit of God to prepare us for that. Can someone get the door, please? Um, So let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, this is a subject that... uh, is of great burden to my own heart and I know uh, to your own heart and to the hearts of all your people because scriptures again and again talk about the importance of self-examination, how our hearts are prone to self-deception. So I pray as we journey through these messages, apart from your spirit doing a deep work in all of our hearts, that this whole thing is futile. My words are just empty words, even to my own soul. So I pray, beginning with me, that you would work in all of our hearts. Humble us. Our propensity is to put a defense against the scriptures, especially when it convicts us. But Lord, I pray that through the powerful working of your spirit, you will shatter all those objections that we raise And you will remove all distractions and that your spirit will captivate our hearts to your precious word. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in keeping your commandments. May that be the desire of our hearts as even today we listen to your word. Please do this work, Lord Jesus. For your name's sake, I pray. Amen. Amen. Did you know that in the Bible... There are at least six examples of people, including Judas, who said, I have sinned and yet ended up in eternal destruction. That's right. At least six examples. At least six. Let's do a quick survey of each of them. And then, that's kind of like the foundation I want to lay. And then based on these six examples and the six that ended up in eternal destruction, I want to use that as a means to talk about false and true repentance. Example number one, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. The first time we see these words uttered, I have sinned, uttered by none other than Pharaoh, who was not a true believer, yet the very same Pharaoh, then confronted by Moses when Moses was trying to bring Israel out of Egypt not once but at least on two occasions said I have sinned the first confession is in Exodus chapter 9 you can follow along in your Bibles or make a note and go home and check Exodus 9:27 page 12 in the Bible that's provided here this is first confession came right after the seventh of the ten plagues that uh, God through Moses' hand inflicted upon Egypt especially the plague of hail in Exodus 9.27 when this hail this big stones like rocks were uh, God inflicted upon uh, Egypt he sees Pharaoh sees this he sees the destruction this is what he says in verse 27 then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron this time I have sinned he said to them The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Sounds like true confession. He is in the right. We're in the wrong. But sadly, we read later, it was only a temporary acknowledgement, and he went back to hardening his heart. The very next chapter, in chapter 10, immediately after the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, the locusts destroy whatever the hail left. Destroyed. And this is what he says in Exodus chapter 10, verses... Sorry, I quoted Genesis 9 to you earlier. (laughs) Exodus 10. Exodus 10. Let me give you the page number in case uh, uh, you don't know. Exodus 10, verses 16 to 17 is in page 91. I apologize for that. Page 91. So after the eighth plague, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses, verse 16, and Aaron and said... I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Sinned. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Second time, note what he said. I have sinned against God and against people. Yet, if you continue to read, you know what happened to Pharaoh. He ended up being cut off from the Lord forever. Example number two, the disobedient Israelites in the wilderness. We read in the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, about three books to your right. in in chapter 13, we find uh, uh, the 12 spies are sent out. They survey the land and they come back. Except Joshua and Caleb, all the 10 bring back a bad report. And in the next chapter, in chapter 14, we read that many people joined the ten spies and start grumbling against God and Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. And in verse 10 of chapter 14, they in fact wanted to stone these four to death because they said, no, we need to keep going forward. And God heard their grumbling. In verses 26 through 36 of chapter 14, we read this lengthy passage, God got angry with them and pronounced judgment on them saying, none of those who grumbled would ever enter the promised land. And to prove that he would keep his word, God put to death the ten spies who brought back the bad report, verses 36 and 37. You know, the people saw this, you know what they did? Look at Numbers 14 verse 40. Early the next morning, They set out for the highest point in the hill country saying, now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. They acknowledge their sin in not trusting God by faith in going into the promised land. When God brought the judgment, they said, let's go up. But they acknowledge, surely we have sinned. That sounds like true repentance, doesn't it? But notice what they did after acknowledging their sin, verses 41 through 45, where Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed, meaning don't go up. Don't go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So here's a clear word from God through Moses, don't go. When he said go, they disobeyed. When God said, don't go, they again disobeyed. After they acknowledged we have sinned says "You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there, because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword." verse 44, nevertheless. <laughs> nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point of the hill country through, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp, meaning the presence of the Lord did not go with them. They went then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Horma. Didn't go too well for them, did it. The Second example. They acknowledged their sin. Right away, they left the prayer meeting and went to sin. Right away, going from church back to your old ways, back to my old ways. Example number three. Balaam. Same in the book of Numbers. Balaam, as you know, was a false prophet who appeared during Israelites' wilderness journey. He initially shows some evidence as there was a godly man There was his king of Moab, Balak. He offered money to Balaam to curse Israel. But he said, no. Oh. He actually blessed Israel. He said, I don't want your money. I don't want all that. That's Numbers 22 verses 1 through 20. But as pressure from Balak increased, because you can see, Balak offers more money, more prominence, so he's like, you know, feeling the Lord, because deep in his heart, he was a wretched man. Love of money. That's all he thought about. That was his idol. He kept pushing back initially, but as it went on, even a donkey, he sits on this donkey, and he goes, angel of the Lord, blocks the way, He starts beating the donkey. The donkey talks to him. Donkey talks to him. Still, he doesn't get it. Think about that. That's what love of money can blind you. Love of any sin for that matter. He starts beating the donkey and the angel of the Lord comes and warns him of this reckless decision because God knew what he was going to do. Look at Balaam's response in Numbers 22 and verse 34. Numbers 22 And verse 34, page 224. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. Same words. I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you are displeased, I will go back. Again, pretending. I'll obey. I'll obey. Later passages tell us he ended up disobeying the Lord and the New Testament writers, Peter, Jude, and John in Revelation, all talk about Balaam being a false prophet and that he ended up being away from the Lord's presence for all eternity because of his love for money. Yet, he did say, I have sinned. Example number four. It's another one. Okay, love of money. Achan. Israel now is in the promised land. There was sin in Egypt. Pharaoh. In the wilderness. Now, they're in the promised land. They had successfully conquered Jericho. That's the first city. And God said, when you defeat Jericho, everything in that city is dedicated to God for destruction. It's dedicated. Don't touch anything. That's sinful. Don't touch it. I have put my curse on everything, including the people in that city. They have this massive victory. Joshua 6 talks about that. But then when you come to the next chapter, Joshua chapter 7, if you move a few books forward, some some of you are already ahead of me here. That's good. You know your Bibles. Uh, Joshua 7. They go to this next city. It's a small city called Ai. They get badly defeated. And Joshua falls down. God, what happened? He gave us this massive victory. And now we're beaten by this small group of people. And the reason, there was one man by the name Achan. He took some clothing, silver and gold, that was forbidden to take from Jericho because they were all devoted to destruction. Joshua chapter 7 verse 21, he acknowledges. But yet when he was caught in his sin, he didn't openly acknowledge until through a series of events, casting lots and picking apart, His family was clearly caught. When he was caught in the act, there's no more escaping. Notice what he says in verse 20. It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. I have sinned. That's the fourth example. And he went on to describe, I saw it was so appealing, and I took it echoes of Genesis 3. Like Eve said, I saw it looked beautiful. I took. Same thing David would do later on. saw committed I took but that did not spare him as the rest of the chapter shows from him and his family losing their lives as a sign of God's judgment when the head of the house fails you bring about destruction men husbands fathers so side note pay close attention example number five Israel is in the Promised Land. They have the first king, Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, you got to keep moving forward. This is arranged in such a way so you can move forward in your Bibles. And historically, that's how it happened. So, uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 15, it's page uh, 402, actually 401. But this whole chapter is about... Uh, God commanding through the prophet Samuel to Saul telling him to destroy all the Amalekites for their many sins just like in Jericho when you defeat Jericho don't touch anything in Jericho it was the same thing here the Amalekites sin has been mounting for 400 plus years God has been patient with them God said when you destroy them I don't want you to leave anything behind and don't take anything the command was clearly given But yet, notice in verses 8 and 9. But Saul and the army spared Agath, he was the king, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. It's what we call as the pet sins. We cherish some pet sins because they give us so much pleasure. What we don't like... What doesn't mean so much to us, you give up. The text is very clear. They kept the best, unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was either way garbage, they got rid of them. It's a false soothing of the conscience. I did give up some sins, right? I did obey. But when Samuel confronted Saul, he initially refuses to accept responsibility, verses 13 through 21. But I obeyed, but I obeyed, he keeps saying when Samuel mentioned that as a result of his disobedience the Lord would reject him as king because all Saul wanted was that position that power, everyone to look up to me I am a success story look at my family look at my dynasty that's all he was focused about just like today it's all about me, my family how are we perceived in the eyes of others That's what I live for, and that's what I will die for. But when Saul faced a threat to his kingship that he cherished, notice what he does in verses 24 and 25. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and in your instructions. I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. He throws in that so that I may worship Yahweh. Sounds like true repentance. Hey, I made a mistake. I want to get back on the right track so that I may worship When Samuel once again said the Lord would not change his mind about removing the kingship from Saul, notice what what Saul does again. Verse 30 of 1 Samuel 15, Saul replied, I have sinned. I'm telling you, man, I have sinned. But please, honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Lord your God by God. Twice we read Saul acknowledging his sin with the words, I have sinned. Fast forward a few chapters. God is now bringing Saul down, removing him from the kingship, setting up David to rise. David's popularity causes Saul to be jealous because that was his idol. Kingship was his idol. He could not stand that David was getting popular. He tries to kill David on multiple occasions. In chapter 26 of the same first Samuel book, chapter 26, I want you to read, I want you to look at verse 21, page 421. Occasion is David could have killed Saul. David forgives him. He doesn't kill him. He lets it go, but he tells Saul, I could have killed you, but I'm letting you go. I want you to know, I'm not a threat to you, Saul. I never had it in my mind to kill you. Look at verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. I have been terribly wrong. So you can see again, not twice, but three times. Three times, We read of Saul acknowledging his sin. Twice for sinning directly against the Lord and the third time for sinning indirectly against the Lord by trying to kill the Lord's anointed, David. God appointed David. David did not self-appoint himself, unlike the leaders of today. It's not a self-promotion. David said, God was appointed. And we know things didn't end well, for Saul did it. 1 Samuel chapter 31 verses 1 through 6 tells about the tragic ending of Saul as he took his own life. So five examples we've seen in the Old Testament of people who said, I have sinned and yet ended up in destruction. Pharaoh, the ten spies and the people who sided with them, Balaam, Achan, and Saul. And the sixth example Judas, Matthew 27 and verse 4, page 14, 19. Judas here, we see, of his own volition, unlike Achan who was caught in his act, unlike Saul who was threatened with the loss of kingship, this is Judas of his own volition, says in verse 4, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent people blood. He even returns the money. One may even call it as moving towards the act of restitution. But in the end, he ends up taking his life. All these six examples, they said, I have sinned some more than once, yet all of them ended up eternally separated from God. What's the issue here? Isn't I have sinned part of our need to acknowledge before God in order to be saved. I mean, isn't that part of true repentance? Yes, it is. But these examples also prove to us there is an acknowledging of sin. In a way, even though we say the words, I have sinned, that is not part of true repentance. There is a I have sinned acknowledging that can still take us to hell. So how can you and I know the difference between true and false repentance? How can I and you be sure our acknowledging of sin is that which constitutes genuine, spirit-prompted, Christ-exalting, God-honoring repentance, a repentance that leads to life? Allow me to give you 10 characteristics of false repentance. We're only going to be looking at five today. Next week we'll look at the other five. But I pray that as we wrestle through this, as we reflect on this, that we would avoid self-deception. And we'll be certain our own repentance, our own acknowledging of sin is a genuine Holy Spirit-prompted one and that we are on the path to eternal life. Characteristic number one of false repentance, it is this, equating feelings of sorrow alone as evidence of true repentance. Equating feelings of sorrow alone as evidence of true repentance. What do I mean by that? I feel sad about my act, so my repentance must be genuine. I draw that from Judas as an example. Look at verses 3 through 5 once again. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned based on verses 1 and 2, because now the Jewish leaders are going to hand him over to Rome, authority of Rome, they see he's condemned, Judas sees he's condemned. He was seized with remorse. In fact, that word remorse comes from the family of words that describe repentance. Felt really bad. He returns the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders and to them he says, I have sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left and then he went away and hanged himself. In fact, he felt so bad for his sin. He felt like, killing himself. Sometimes when we feel bad about our sin, what do we say? I feel like putting a bullet to my head. I feel so ashamed of my sin. That is part of true repentance. Have you not felt that at all in your life if you're a believer? Felt so shameful for your sin and you're bawling your tears out. It's not to impress anyone. Deep in your heart, you know what you have done and you feel so bad about it. You feel like my life is not worth living. Judas felt that way. He did take his own life too. But it's not true biblical repentance. It's a sorrow for sure, but it's not a sorrow that leads to eternal life. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 there are two kinds of sorrow. Two kinds of sorrow. If you move to your right, You should be able to find 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll give you the page number in a minute. It's page 1650. Page 1650. Paul contrasts and explains to the Corinthians, there is a kind of sorrow that leads to eternal life. There is a kind of sorrow that leads to eternal condemnation. Look at verse 10. Godly sorrow, a God-produced, god word sorrow, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's good to be having that kind of a sorrow is what Paul says. He says earlier, I know you were hurt by my words, but you did display true repentance, true sorrow, so don't regret about it. Because that's a way for you to know that your sorrow is a godly sorrow. But also he says there is a type of sorrow, that's worldly sorrow, that brings death. It's the kind of sorrow that's not a God-granted, God-focused sorrow. It doesn't turn to Christ. It just feels bad about, how could I have done this? Sometimes it's actually pride also that does that. How could I have failed? Me fail. Judas's sorrow was a worldly sorrow. To the very end, he never turned to Christ. And that ultimately led to his, not just a physical death, but beyond that, to eternal death. It's another example in the Bible, a fellow by the name Esau, the brother of Jacob. He also exhibited sorrow for his actions. But again, his sorrow like that of Judas was not a biblical sorrow. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, page 1718. We're going to look at verses 16 through 17. Background is, if you go back to Genesis, you will read there in Genesis, uh, chapter 26, I believe, or 27, somewhere there. uh, Esau was the firstborn of Jacob. I mean, firstborn of uh, Isaac. And he had the birthright. But he trades that birthright for a meal. Giving up your birthright is a big thing. He, He threw that away. And later, he feels bad about it. The writer says this, he had a sorrow. He wanted it back, but it was too late. Look at Hebrews chapter verse 12. And the the writer uses his example as a warning to us. Don't be like him. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless. That's important. That tells us Esau's sorrow is not just for this. He was a godless man was godless like Esau for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Gluttony. His thing was food. For some it's money. In his case it was just the fleshly desires. Afterward as you know when he wanted to inherit this blessing he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears. Again he had tears. He could not change what he had done. Again could not change, could not repent. Because it, his was not a godly repentance. God could have saved him. Even though he lost the birthright, he could have still been saved. But at heart, the Bible describes him as a godless man. Godless man. So this goes beyond just the loss of an inheritance. False repentance. So equating feelings of sorrow alone without turning to Christ is not true repentance. Repentance but it's a false one. Many like Judas are there in the church today. They have a lot of sorrow for their actions, even shed a lot of tears, but that's it, nothing more. It doesn't lead them to turn from their sin, from self and turn to Christ. Characteristic number two of false repentance, confessing sin without turning from it. Confessing sin without turning from it. Balaam is a classic example, isn't it? He said, I have sinned. Numbers chapter 22, verse 34. Yet, he did not let go of his love for money. And guess what? He got the money. He would have said, if God wasn't there with me, how could I have got the money? We think if something happens, that means God is on our side God's patience God's tolerance must not be interpreted as God's approval just because sentence for a crime is not executed speedily hearts of the wicked grow harder and harder to commit disobedience Ecclesiastes 8 verses 11 through 14 go home and read that a lot of people like Balaam. They make long confessions of sin. Even shed a lot of tears, weep. But they don't desire to turn from their sin. Perhaps a pet sin or pet sins. They coddle it, protect it, hold it tight. And one day, that serpent will strike. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. for on day it will strike, if not this side of life, on the day of judgment. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen clearly tells us this. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and doesn't stop there and renounces them finds mercy. See, there's, a, there's this false feeling. I did confess my sin. I did acknowledge. I even wept over my sin but no changes are made that sin is not given up so because we confess because we even fast and pray we even weep over it we conclude my repentance is genuine at least I'm acknowledging at least I'm weeping over it that's good that's part of true repentance but that's not all of it What if your spouse comes and says, I know I should not be with that other person. I acknowledge my sin to you. I am weeping over it. But tonight I cannot be home. I have to go be with him or her. do a far greater injustice to the one who created us, our maker. We mock him through our confession sometimes. Because we don't have a desire to turn from our sin. How terrible it is to acknowledge that to him and have no desire. I'm not talking about when we, in our weakness, keep falling over the same sin. We're not talking perfection here. But we're talking about there is a lack of desire, a commitment to really turn from that sin in that confession. If in that confession we say, Lord, I find it hard to turn from this sin, help me. That's different. That's part of true repentance. I don't want you to misunderstand thinking I'm preaching perfectionism here. Absolutely not. Here, it's just confessing without having any inclination to turn from it. Characteristic number three of false repentance repenting only to escape present consequences, but not because of a true hatred of sin. Repenting only to escape present consequences. But not because of a true hatred towards sin. Pharaoh comes to mind, doesn't it? Just get me out of this, Moses. And every time he resisted God, every time his heart kept getting harder and harder. And God also judicially hardening his heart. He still didn't let Israel go after the seventh or the eighth plague, not until the final blow the death of his firstborn that he said okay beyond this I cannot handle the consequences and many are like that they repent only when there is a real affliction or the threat of a great punishment or loss now let me also say this God can and does often lead us to true repentance as a result of a great affliction that's not what I'm talking about here What I'm talking about here is the kind of repentance that's only focusing on, get us out of this. I'm reminded of the thief on the cross. One guy said, when you return Jesus, remember me. He's not talking about bail me out now. The other guy says what? Save yourself and save us. Just get us out of this, Jesus. But the truly repentant one says, someday, he believed in Jesus' resurrection, marvelous faith, that he would come as king. Someday when you come in your kingdom, Would you please remember this pathetic sinner? See, that's what true repentance does. It's not focused on the present. It's just, "Ah, I hate what I've done to you, my God. Forgive me. God, if only you will get me out of this situation, I promise you, I swear on my mother's grave, whatever, you know. I'll clean my life in my life it's like the criminal when he gets caught he agrees to cooperate with the police not because his actions were wrong but by cooperating he knows he he can get his sentence reduced it's not because what I've done is wrong I am guilty I am guilty they don't plead I'm not guilty they loudly scream I am guilty as a true repentant person. When there is the Holy Spirit involved, when he prompts a confession of sin, it would be a confession that will not only acknowledge its sin, but hate sin, not because of what it does to me and others, but first and foremost, what my sin has done to my God. It was beautiful. We read Psalm 51 earlier. She did that on her own. Against you, you alone have I sinned. David takes sides with God against himself. I'm seeing my sin from your perspective, God. Yes, it's a sin against you. Number four, characteristic number four of false repentance. Equating penance as evidence of true repentance. Equating penance. What is penance? Penance is a form of voluntary self-punishment. Roman Catholic theology stresses a lot about penance. In fact, one Roman Catholic version of the Bible, the Dewey Rheims version, actually, the translation itself substitutes the word penance for repentance. The problem is this in Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and verse 5, Jesus didn't say, unless you do penance, you will all perish. What did he say? Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Part of the Catholic teaching is when you sin, when a believing Catholic sins and he or she goes to the priest and acknowledges sin the priest then will say do certain things come back then I'll pronounce forgiveness so the person does that goes back and the priest says okay you're now loosed from your sin it's works based self effort that's why the teaching spreads even outside of Catholic circles because it appeals to the flesh. You can do something for your sin. You can embrace this forgiveness, receive this forgiveness by your own efforts. It appeals to the flesh. But grace demolishes any effort reliance on the flesh. Grace talks about, I receive. I have nothing to give. Like that publican who said, God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner that I am. People who have this attitude of penance are even sometimes filled with a secret pride and sense of satisfaction. I've done much more than what my sin cost, damage. I've done much more. It's false repentance. Now, sorrow and in some cases, restitution are part of true repentance but penance that gives the idea of earning your forgiveness is not true repentance. Fifth and last characteristic for today, false repentance, justifying sinful actions while at the same time professing repentance. Justifying sinful actions. Go back to 1 Samuel 15. I do want to uh, highlight this one more time. 1 Samuel 15. 15 and I want to look at verse 15 it's page 401 in the church Bibles here, page 401 notice when Samuel confronted Saul for failing to obey the Lord's command fully in terms of destroying the Amalekites and everything that was there this is what he said, verse 15 the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites they spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Did you see this here closely? When it came to disobedience, notice what he says: the soldiers brought them, they spared the best of the sheep. But when it came to when it came to obedience, but we totally destroyed the rest. See how he lines up with the obedient when it's convenient, he distances himself from the disobedient when I mean, it's not to his advantage. Again when Samuel pushed and said, no Saul, you've lost the kingship. Once again he would say, I have sinned. It's justifying. I mean the same kind of repentance is common even in our day. How often we run into people or oh, we run into the mirror to see us also being one of the people who say, I know I am doing wrong but what am I supposed to do? I tried hard. I felt the pressure of loneliness, especially when it comes to sinful relationships. I have a pressure from my husband, from my wife, from my children, from my parents, from my in-laws, or even the society or my boss at work. I had no choice. Yeah, I did try to resist it. Doesn't that count for something? Justification instead of truly acknowledging I and I alone have sinned. Now, please don't misunderstand, I'm not talking here about doing things that we may not like to do, but we still do, especially those actions that are not a violation of biblical commands. It's a matter of preference. I may not like it, but I see the common good that could come. So there's always a give and take in families and relationships. We're not talking about that. We're talking about doing something that clearly violates the scriptures and try to blame others for it instead of taking full responsibility ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, do I say sorry and yet at the same time justify our actions? But God, you know there was no other choice for me. never the case Mm -hmm. it's better to say yes Lord even though I had choices I sinned and sadly even though I might be prone to doing that same sin again still God right now as I'm coming to you I take full blame full responsibility I sinned I'm sure you watch any TV shows or movies or even read in the papers when someone is caught for a bad act when you read or see that there was no remorse at all, or the person is just justifying, versus, even if it's a horrific crime, when someone truly acknowledges, don't you feel there's a little different in the way you look at the two things? I'm sure you do. If human hearts made an image of God has that response, how much more a holy God would do? He says, "I know you're a sinner. Why don't you just come clean?" at least there's hope if you're willing to come clean. See, confession alone doesn't save us, but at least if the confession is a part of true repentance, it has to be the right kind of confession. So five ways we see how repentance can be a sham repentance, even though we might acknowledge sin in one form or the other. And that is why we need to repent of our repentance. I'm taking my time through this series. you know why? It's a specific reason. I really want the Spirit of God to work in us. Because this will take some time, I understand. Which means we have to go back and reflect in our lives, in our thinking, in our desires, in our motives. And from the root up, we need to ask God to pull it out. So five characteristics we've seen for this morning. Number one, equating sorrow, feelings of sorrow alone as evidence of true repentance. Judas and Esau, classic examples. That's it, sorrow and no nothing more. Characteristic number two, confessing sin without turning from it. Balaam acknowledged his sin, never let go of his love for money. What is he counting now in Hades? That is money. Number three. Characteristic of false repentance. Repenting only to escape present consequences, not because of a true hatred toward Sinfero. Classic example. Yes, we may escape some present consequences, but there is an eternal consequence that's coming if our repentance is false. Number four. Number four. Equating penance As evidence of true repentance any kind of works any kind of works you call it penance you call it whatever the minute you destroy grace forgiveness can never be earned restitution is a fruit of repentance not the root remember that should flow bring forth deeds worthy of repentance we'll talk about that when we talk about true repentance it's a fruit not the root and number five Characteristic number five of false repentance, justifying sinful actions while at the same time professing repentance. So you see, just saying I have sinned does not necessarily constitute true repentance. We need to take a closer look at our motives, our actions, and our lifestyle. 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 Your life, my life, does not lie. Where our treasure is, there will our hearts be. It's not enough just coming to church, putting on an act. That mask will be ripped. I can even be preaching here. And I can hear the words, depart from me. Very important. That's why David prayed, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Bring even those presumptuous sins, willful sins, hidden sins, everything. David doesn't say, Forgive me of my hidden sins by not even bringing to my attention. That's not the biblical idea. Bring it to my attention so I can acknowledge it without justifying and come to you for cleansing. Beautiful songs we sang. Focus on asking God to do that work that we ourselves can never do. Cleansing from within us. And if we prayerfully and humbly ask God to search our hearts with a desire to turn from our sins, I believe, I'm confident that God will reveal this to us because that kind of a prayer, that kind of a desire is keeping, is in keeping with His heart, it's in keeping with His word. And meanwhile, remember, the foundational step that follows an acknowledgement of sin, is to turn from sin, turn from self, and turn to Jesus Christ alone. If you've never done that, or maybe you did that, but you realize it was false, today, in a few minutes, we're going to participate in the table. We'll be reminded of the significance of the table. You can, for the first time in your life, Lord, I surrender. You can say And have a new life. And for those of us. Who by the grace of God. Have done that. We can once again. Ask the spirit of God. To search our hearts. And strengthen us. All all of us. Our repentance needs repentance. All of us. So we can go to God and say. Help me. The grace of God. Is always there. To those. Who come to him without any excuses but the sincere acknowledgement. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you forgive anything that I said that is not in keeping with your word. I pray that your spirit will truly honor your word, a word that he gave by moving Meant to record this for us and preserving it for centuries so that we will see ourselves for who we really are, who we really are in your sight, and what we need to do to be right before you. Lord, I sincerely ask of you through this series, you produce a genuine revival in our midst so that we will be a people after your own heart, zealous for holiness and for good works that prove our repentance is genuine. Have mercy upon us, O God. Have mercy. Amen.